Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, A Fireside Chat with the Pastor. In this message, Eric shares his heart and vision for what a local church body ought to look like and how it ought to operate. There are two main ingredients that seem missing in our modern culture. One is the pastor who is willing to look the fool and isn't pandering for popularity, but preaches soli deo gloria, for God's glory alone. The other ingredient is the broken heart for the vulnerable. You see, a pastor must have both boldness and brokenness, and the church must follow in that example. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I wanted to share a little thing today that I don't know if it'd be classified as a sermon. I don't know what to classify it as. I, who knows? I might start preaching somewhere in the midst of it, but I might not preach at all the entire while. I don't know what this will come out like, but I wanted to share something with you that I think would help you understand this a little and from a unique vantage point. So are you guys up for that? You don't know what you just agreed to, do you? <laughs> a fireside chat with the pastor. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, back in 1933, launched his fireside chats. And I never listened to one, so I'm not exactly sure if this is going to sound similar or not. But to me, a fireside chat is informal, and it just sort of gets down past that typical veneer that can easily be there in social relationships. You basically get what you get when you get Eric Ludi. I'm the same guy wherever you, you catch me. I do love people. I am not fully an extrovert, even though I might come across like that sometimes, because I do love people. But I also love to be alone. I love to be with my family. And I'm very protective of family time. If any of you hang around with me, you'll, you'll notice that, that I will steal away just to be with the family. Because one of the things that I feel very strongly about is that I do not want my kids growing up resenting what I do. I want them to always know that they're a priority. Easier said than done, ministry can eat away at all your life if you allow it to. And so you have to learn how to put up boundaries, and yet you don't want those boundaries to ever be a snub and a show of unlove or hostility towards those that just need help. And so there's a great tension and a difficulty in being a leader, but you could say that about just being a Christian, because every single one of us, at whatever level we are living this Christian life out, has the same tensions. And so I think in walking through some of this, you'll sort of understand how I work a little better, because sometimes you guys are just looking in from the outside, and you may not understand why Eric does some of the things he does, but usually there's a rhyme uh, behind it, and there's a reason. Uh, so here's a little quote. It's from me, so I, there's no one to quote except for just to read it. <laughs> when Christianity returns full force with unashamed authority and confidence to the stage of time, there are two options of how it will go. Either society will be entirely changed and a revival will sweep the nations, or they will build crosses for us and crucify us on them. Whichever way it goes, God will get the glory. Now, if you've hung around me, you've heard me say something similar to that many, many times. Two options. 
Either worldwide revival breaks out or we die. That's the sort of Christianity I want to live. That's the sort of Christianity I want to preach. That's the sort of Christianity I want all of us to be living. You hang out in this area and that's what you're going to get. And some of you could say, well, so what if the revival doesn't end up breaking out? Then we die. We die to see that revival. We die to see Jesus Christ gain his due. And you know what? I am not going to pander after any public approval ratings in here of me making you comfortable. Any of you that have hung out here know that I seem to specialize in making people uncomfortable. And yet, first and foremost, my desire is to be uncomfortable in my own soul, not to make you uncomfortable. You just happen to be near a guy who is willing to be uncomfortable. I always want my soul to be ready to say yes. And so one of the tests in my soul is, God, am I saying yes or am I making excuses right now? A few years back, well, I guess it was around eight, eight years ago, Leslie and I felt very strongly that we needed to sell everything and we were going to move to a third world country. And <clears throat> so we began to take steps forward in that. In fact, we were planning on moving to Nicaragua at the time. And God sort of, when we lifted up the knife, ready to move forward, and actually I was excited. Some of you can identify with this, but when you hang out in this culture, the more you see Jesus, the more you see the decadence in this culture, and you see how quickly it can pull you in. And so you begin to get a disgust for the easy laxness of this culture, and so you find yourself wanting to escape it. You know one of the hardest places to be called? Right here. It's the funniest thing because it's also the spot you want to be called. I'd like to be called to Windsor, Colorado. However, if you're called to Windsor, Colorado, you need to know that you're called to Windsor, Colorado. This is a hard place to live radically for Jesus Christ. So remember there's two options. What do most of us say? I'll take option one. Thank you. What was that? Revival. What are we praying for? We're praying for revival. So look at this next slide. We pray for the revival, and we are ill-prepared and desperately afraid of the crosses. Do we know that when we are praying for the return, full-force return of Christianity, that we also are praying, very likely, for the fact that we may be put on crosses afresh? We're ill-prepared and desperately afraid of the crosses. That's what concerns me. It concerns me about me, and it concerns me about you guys. I want the real thing, and whatever it takes to prepare us to be the real thing in this generation, it's not just our prayer lives. It's the preparation of our souls to suffer, and we learn to suffer all day long every day if we're willing to embrace it. There will be slights. We will be overlooked. Things will not go our way, but how do we respond to those moments? Because if we are not responding with a graciousness in the small moments of suffering, believe me, we will not be responding well in the bigger moments of suffering. Are we prepared? We want the revival, but are we willing to get option two instead? Either way, God gets glory. God is willing to spend us as his body. And you could say, what? The father was willing to spend his son to get us. Yeah, he's, he's willing to spend us to get his reward. You see, his glory is hanging in the ascendant, and we are his hands and feet. We are the ones that will carry his message into the ends of the earth. Are we willing 
to choose Christianity on his terms instead of ours. So a fireside chat, an informal conversation. I don't know if this is a fireside chat so far. I feel like I'm already turning into a preacher. The three things I would never become. Some of you have probably heard me say this before, but I haven't said it for a while. There were three things growing up that I declared I would never do. I had reasons for each one. I would never be a teacher because they were so pitifully paid. I remember that. Teachers were always had such low budgets and you know, their income was so bad. And it's like, come on, the, t- the kids don't even appreciate teachers either. You know, they're always making fun of them behind the scenes and always glad when they're, they're sick and, you know, a substitute comes in. I don't want to be a teacher. A missionary. Well, the pay is pretty poor for that one, too. But, you see, missionaries were sort of the kooky sort of Christians. You see, there was normal Christians, and that's what I wanted to be. I See, I wanted to be a Christian. Don't get me wrong. But I didn't want to be an extreme Christian. My sister graduated from high school, and she went on the mission field. And I remember all my friends, because I was younger than her, so I was still in high school, all my friends saying, so where's your sister going to college? Yeah, she's, uh, <clears throat> she's going to youth with a mission. How embarrassing was that? I did not want to be associated with that. Teachers, missionaries. <laughs> no, uh-uh. You know that in my family line, the Ludi family line, seven generations of pastors, you know that that was broken with my grandpa, who said the same thing I did. There's been something running in the Ludi family from my grandpa to my dad to me. No. Uh-uh. But there's a pull. My grandpa probably should have been. But there was a pull. It's like, no! I don't know how to explain it, but I grew up in a very upside-down version of Christianity. Pastors were usually the problems in society, not necessarily the helps. And... I got to see some up-close-and-personal views of pastors' lives, and there was nothing attractive about it to me. And I'm looking for something that will... It just has the, the bling to it in a pastoral life. I mean, look at that three. What did I become? I mean, that's, that's like my life right there. Here's what I want you to know as we progress into this. My life doesn't look like I wanted it to look. At all. But when you are captivated by Jesus Christ, when you are rescued from the slime of self, when your old man is finally dealt with and you can live according to the Spirit as opposed to the flesh, I tell you what, I love what I do. You know what? I would encourage anyone who comes through Ellerslie to consider being teachers, missionaries, pastors. That's what I build now. This is what I care about. The pastoral holdout. You guys know that when Ellerslie was starting, we knew we needed to do some type of extension of Ellerslie, a a church. We called it a student church. And uh, I remember saying to the staff, so we'll need to somehow get a pastor for that. And so, yeah, yeah, and the time would pass. Yeah, so we need to find a pastor We had all sorts of people that must have heard rumor about that. We had all sorts of applicants coming in. We never even publicly said anything. All sorts of applications coming in. But it felt so strange just to randomly pick someone out there. And so I remember the fateful day when I realized, all right, okay, I'll start and I'll do it at the beginning, but then we'll we'll replace me, right? 
So this is literally, I was, no, uh-uh, no, uh-uh, no, no. Okay, maybe I should pray about this. How many of you have said you would never get a minivan? <laughs> all, all four have a minivan? No, I don't know. Ben, ben, you don't have a minivan yet, do you? It's coming. It's coming. You know, minivans are actually very impressive creations, I have to admit. I love the minivan. I don't always like to be seen driving in it, but uh, I, I really do like it. The four things I would never become. I added one to the list as God began to get a hold of my life. A teacher, a missionary, a pastor, a prophet. Now, I don't want to get into uh, parsing words on what a prophet is and if they still exist. I'm not talking about Isaiah the prophet. I'm talking about that sort of character that has a camel skin loincloth and wiry hair and barks a lot, speaks really loud, and has a long, bony, pointy finger. And is always like sticking it in people's chests saying, repent! Oh no, uh-uh, I'm not going to be one of those guys. You know what's funny is I've had God's hand in the small of my back pushing me forward. And one of the most critical times of my life came. Because I am, I'm a guy who knows how to be liked. I know that sounds very strange. But I grew up with a sixth sense in social situations. And as a result, I knew when people liked me and I could tell when people didn't like me. It's a weird thing, you know, that I can tell when you're offended and you're upset with me and I can tell when, when you're in agreement. Yeah, sorry to break that to you. But it mattered to me too. And so as a result, I could play to a crowd. And I could give the crowd what they would want as opposed to what they needed. And I used to travel around the world and speak and I'd be in all sorts of different situations where I knew what they may need, but there was no way I was going to actually give them that. I was just going to give them that which would cause them to like me. And then if they liked me, they might be attracted to the God that I serve. As opposed to giving them what they need, because without it, they die. And so it was a popularity contest. You know, I was voted homecoming king in high school and homecoming king in college. I was liked. What happened to Eric Ludi? Eric Ludi said yes to God. God, I'm willing to be unliked. You know how hard that is? Especially for someone with the sixth sense that I have. To actually know that people are reviling me. To know it. To feel it. And to still walk forward. And to still choose to say what I know I shouldn't be saying, and I know that is socially incorrect, I know it is politically incorrect, because a lot of people just assume I don't know political correctness or I don't know social correctness. I do. It's like hot-wired into me. I don't know if it's hot-wired into everyone else, but I have a sense of what is right and what is wrong in a society. However, when the sense of what is right and wrong in heaven overrules that, suddenly you can begin to function as a Christian. My fireside chat voice needs to get a little softer, doesn't it? Leslie, does your husband know that he is really loud? <laughs> Actual quote. What was Leslie's response? Yes, I'm the one that asks him to be. You know, Leslie's the one that encouraged me to be a man in the way I deliver the goods of heaven to this world. 
Everyone thinks that appealing to Leslie is going to be the means by which they can get me to dial it down a bit. However, Leslie is the one that says, hey, I'm the one looking for my man to be a man in this generation. When will someone rise up and speak it the way it must be spoken? And so just in case you're thinking of appealing to me to get me to dial it down a little by going to Leslie, it's not going to work. That'll backfire. It's probably easier to go to me. (laughs) What happens, though, when people tell me to quiet down is typically I get a little louder, so you have to watch out for that. I don't purposely speak loud, just so you guys know. I actually speak at normal volumes if you meet with me anywhere else. (laughs) There is something that has happened to me, and it's a very difficult thing to know how to articulate, but a volcano has awakened within me. I used to not be a preacher. I was just a teacher. And I would go around the world and I would speak to thousands of people and I would use humor and I would teach them. And then one day, and it has something to do with the Holy Spirit, something awakened within me and it was oppressing. It was, I don't know what it's described to say, volcano beneath the surface that has to come out. But when you speak suddenly, and any of you that have ever preached or ever know what this is like can understand. You could nod along. However, if you don't know what it's like, you just look at Eric and it's like, what a weird character he is. Couldn't he learn just to speak more quietly? It's not purposeful. It's not like I'm up here conspiring to say, oh, this is the time to swell the volume right now. The two maneuvers of the Spirit of God, the making of the idiot preacher and the making of a father to the poor. I feel like God is doing two specific things. And here's what I'd like to also say. In how he's been working in my life, in no way are we even close to completion. So when you look at these two things on the list, the idiot preacher, how much more idiotic can I be? We'll find out. (laughs) A father to the poor. God has awakened something in me. However, I study the Bible and I study Christian history and I realize, wow, it's barely begun. I don't know what God's doing, but here's my hunch. If you're supposed to be here, what he's doing in me is probably what he's doing in you. Now, you may be a visitor saying, oh, no, no, he's not. And this might be the last time I see you. (laughs) However, it's very likely that some of you that are here right now, the Spirit of God is doing the same thing. He's calling you out from this world, and He's saying, are you willing to be my teacher, my missionary, my pastor, my prophet? And your answer to that question is is sort of a telltale sign of where you're at. If you know my answer, no, 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 okay, I'll pray about it. Well, what does that actually mean? You're just trying to delay it a little longer. You know what God is asking. You know what he's doing inside of you. He's saying, are you willing to live for my applause instead of theirs? Are you willing to be my man? God doesn't just speak loudly. He speaks the way an audience needs to hear it. Sometimes that's in a whisper. It doesn't mean one certain package. What you see in my life is one way that God can work this out. One way. However, there's something of the idiot preacher and there's something of the father of the poor that God wants to do, I think, in every single one of us.
Eric, will you become an idiot for my sake? I want you to stick your name into that sentence. Well, we could define idiot. The fool. The one who doesn't seem like he has a brain. The one who's lacking intelligence. The one who is cuckoo. I grew up well-educated. My family, extended family, is all well-educated. In a sense, there's a little bit of pride, probably, in my family tree of the fact that we are well put together, we all earn a good income, and we are more academically sound than the rabble around us. Maybe it's a little tilt of the nose upward. I don't know. However, what I can say is, for whatever reason, when God came to me with this, it wasn't very easy for me to say yes. It was a wrestling match within me. I remember this one person, I think I've told the students this, but if you ever write a book, do not read reviews. Do not read what people think about you. It is not a good strategy in life. Every once in a while you hear something like, and I really like Eric Ludi's writings. You're like, huh, that could lead to pride. And then you have the rest of the bunch that hate it. And as a result, what do you do? You stew. You get mad. You get discouraged. Just don't read the stuff. I haven't read a review in a long time, and I'm a happy guy for it. <laughs> so this is way back in the day. I decided to read a review. Someone was on Amazon reviewing one of my books. And why I chose to click on it, I don't know, but I did. And they were mocking me, saying how unintellectual my writing style was and how even a kindergartner could understand my writing and that they preferred more of the intellectual Christian writings of so-and-so. And so I was just, you know, I was mad. You think I'm unintelligible? You think my writing is low grade? I'll show you! And so I wrote the foreword for my next book that was coming out, and I must have written, I don't know, it was impossible to read by the time I was done with it. The, guy that, the editor that got it called me up and said, Eric, I needed a dictionary to read your foreword. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right, you did. You see, we have a tendency to overreact. We do not want to be deemed the ones that lack the smarts. Eric, will you become an idiot for my sake? God, do I have to look like an idiot? You see, you won't look like an idiot to everyone, but are you willing to? Are you willing to have the world consider you lesser? Are you willing to have the world around you actually consider you refuse? Are you willing to have the world around you actually want you removed from the earth so that they can be happy again? Are you willing? Gulp. Idiotes. That's a Greek word. Biblical. Seemingly unlearned, appearing unskilled, and lacking intelligence. Well, how many of us try and build our life in such a way that we would come across that way? I don't know many of us that head out into life to grow up to be an idiot. So what are you going to grow up to be, Eric? An idiotes. <laughs> but though I be idiotes in speech, you know who wrote that? Paul. Paul the Apostle. Now, most of you don't think of Paul as an idiot. You have a high regard for him. However, he was deemed an idiot by the world in which he lived. One of the most intelligent men that probably many of us have ever read, Paul the Apostle. And yet he was willing to appear the idiot. Eric, will you call my people your people? You know that 
there's some funny looking people in the world today. There's some funny smelling people in the world today. There's some very awkward people in the world today that are not that easy to be around. It's God's special people. I don't know if you guys recognize where this comes from. Will you call my people your people? Bromwell. This is William Booth talking. That's his oldest son. These are our people. He was in a bar, in a pub in East London. These are our people, the people I want you to live for. So look at my title here. Eric, will you call my people your people? Uh, In different cultures, we have different prejudices. And when you look at Asian cultures, they have certain things that to us as Americans, we look at and we're like, I can't believe they would behave that way. However, when they look at us, they think the same way. For instance, deformities and any type of thing like that in Asian cultures are uh, a huge sign of shame. And they do not adopt because pure bloodline is of extreme importance in Asian culture. And so as a result, they have a huge orphan problem, like in South Korea. A huge orphan problem, even though there's probably more Christians per capita in South Korea than here in America. And yet they have a huge problem. Why? Well, because of their strange prejudices. However, you know what? They at least take care of their parents. And their grandparents and parents will all live with them in one family. They actually understand family there. I don't know that we have a very good grip on that. So they look at us in America with horror and shock. However, both of us, in our own way, have prejudices that lead to problems. And here in America, we have a caste system of sorts. And suburbia, basically, is our escape route. And so if you have the resources, you get away from the rabble. You separate from it. It doesn't mean you make a judgment on it. You just get out. And so as a result, we have a certain prejudice. And to live in certain areas is a diminishment to your status in society. You know, what car you drive is part of your status, And so there's different things that would lower our status. And so when that question comes up, you sort of have to be careful not to answer quickly. Because what does God mean by that? Will you call my people your people? Let's go through that a little. Job 29, I was eyes to the blind and feet was I to the lame. I was a father to the poor. Isn't that an amazing statement? He was a father to the poor. And the cause which I knew not, I searched out, and I broke the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil out of his teeth. This is Job 29, what I oftentimes say is the man chapter in the Bible. Women have Proverbs 31, men have Job chapter 29. This is a picture of Jesus Christ, not just a picture of Job, even though it is an extraordinary picture of Job. This is the life that God said, have you considered my servant Job? You see, what was it about Job that was so impressive? Job was a father to the poor. He was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. You see, Job was was a prosperous man. He was well-to-do. He was strong. But what did he do with his strength? He gave it. He was eyes to the blind. See, he had sight. So what did he do with his sight? He lent it to the blind. He had feet. So what did he do? He lent those feet to the lame. He had wealth, so what did he do? He was a father to the poor. And if you're someone who's poor, he took you under his wing and called you his. 
You see, there's something about this that is a picture of heaven come to earth. It is a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the body of Christ. If we truly are going to function as Christ functioned, then we too, those of us with eyes and feet and resources, will become eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. And we too will be fathers to the poor. The making of the idiot preacher. So I'm going to go through both of these. And first of all, we're going to talk about how I was made into an idiot preacher. And then we're going to talk about the making of a father to the poor. And what I want you to do is, as we go through the terrain of this, I want you to begin to personally apply. Sometimes stories are just enjoyable. This is not the purpose for these stories. I want you to wrestle with where you stand. I want you to wrestle with the fact, are you going to be so closely tied with your comfort zones that you're unwilling to let Jesus Christ have his rightful place in your life? So I was raised in an era of scandal. I'm going to build on this word scandal as we progress, but we live in an era of scandal right now. You know that it's very possible that in the last even year or two, we've had more scandal in Christianity than any other time. Uh, we've had more failure in our leaders, maybe in the last couple years than any other time. And that's including Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker way back in the day. I'm talking about a massive mudslide right now. I was raised in an era of, era of scandal when I was a young boy, Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker, uh, both failed, and it was a huge deal. In fact, it was humiliating to even be called a Christian. It was seriously embarrassing. And that's the era in which I grew up in. Well, many of you that are young, you're growing up in an era that is quite similar. In fact, it might even be more intense. There's a great falling away from Christianity when these things happen. Because many of us have put our faith and our confidence in our leaders instead of in the leader, Jesus Christ. Men may fail us, but Jesus Christ is a rock. Well, we, I was raised in the era of scandal. How did that affect me? Well, I don't know that I saw a picture of vigorous, true Christianity. And as a result... There was a hampering in my soul and the development of my soul at a young age, even though I had truth, I struggled with knowing what it looked like. The disappointment in following men. I put my confidence in some leaders in Christianity, and I remember different people saying to me, oh yeah, and did you ever hear that his children all fell away? Thank you. That really helps me. You see, I was already struggling with confidence in any of the leaders because of the failure around me, but then I started to try and find a leader to put my confidence in. And so I remember this one particular leader that had had a big impact on me, and he was still alive. And I came to this uh, booksellers convention, and I, was, I had a media pass at that time, and so I actually was able to sit down in one of his little press conferences. And then I came up to him afterward and said, uh, my name's Eric Ludy, and I just wanted to let you know what an impact you've had on my life. And he said, just, what, what was that, Charlie? Yeah. Oh, here's Charlie right there. I didn't mean it that way. What is that? Oh, yeah. I'll get to that in just a second. All right, well, who are you? Yeah, my name's Eric. Oh, no. Could you put that over there? Yeah, I need that uh, over there. What do you need? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, uh, I'll be there in just a second. Okay, guys? All right. Can I help you? No, I'm fine. The disillusionment? 
that sank deeply into my soul. I expected something out of this man. Sort of hard to express what that is, and you probably understand what I mean by that too. When you put someone up on a pedestal, it's very easy for them to fall off of it. Because if you've ever been in a leader situation where you have a lot of stuff going on and you have someone talking to you here, you could easily be distracted. We could all do the same thing, but the effect upon the young man is extreme. Now, whose fault is it? Is it the guy's fault or was it my fault? Well, that's a debatable point. Was it my fault that I put so much emphasis in this man? Or was it his fault that he was showing a disregard and an insensitivity to me? Either way, we're vulnerable. And I had a disappointment in following men. The fear of scandal. I remember when we got a call and the publisher said, I'd like to publish your book. Our love story is rather extraordinary. And we were being asked to share it all over the place. When we first got married, schools, radio, I mean, all sorts of different events. And we didn't want to lose the luster, the beauty, the romance of it. And so we wrote it down. It was about two, three weeks of our spare time. We wrote this thing down and staple bound it in a book. The next person that asked us, we were just going to stick a book in their face and say, just read this. We don't really want to talk about it. Just, just read this. Well, so a publisher gets this book, calls us up and says, I'd like to publish this. Like, what? what is the deal with this? Why is everyone so interested in this? And he said, would you be interested in possibly traveling uh, the world and speaking on it? Not really. We weren't interested in this. I was interested in being a doctor. I did not want to go into ministry. Did not want to do this. And yet, guess what? We started getting invites all over the place. Could you come and speak? So I remember traveling uh, with reticence, mind you, and speaking. And then I remember it was about a year into it, and we had so many worldwide tours all over the place. We didn't say to one person that we were willing to speak. Not one. We were asked if we would speak. And so we figured, all right, We'll do it just for this little short period of time. And I remember driving down the road with Leslie. I remember the exact spot I was at in the road, looking across the car at her as I was driving. And I said, what if God wanted us to do this full time? And she said exactly what I was thinking. No way. God, we don't want to be like those ministry people out there that are false. We want to maintain a genuine nature. And the only way to maintain a genuine nature is you can't get into ministry. You see, if you ever become a missionary, a pastor, some formal type of ministry thing, then you become false. I do not want to do that. I do not want to do this full time. This is only for a season and then we'll get back to sanity. We'll get back, I'll get back into like med school. We'll we'll do this right. I'll just be a doctor who's a Christian and I'll share Jesus everywhere I go. But I don't want to be in a ministry. When Leslie and I started, we started getting offers for books. And I remember Leslie and I, the, the great thing that was weighing upon us as God was pressing us forward in this is, was a fear. I had a fear that I would tarnish his name, like all these other men around me that had stood up for him and then made such a debacle of truth in their generation. I don't want to be like that. I do not want to be like that. So I was afraid to speak. Because I don't want to be one of those guys. Lord, may I never tarnish your name. Leslie and I made a commitment to each other that we could never write something in a book unless we first lived it first. 
We do not talk about things that aren't familiar to us. We will only say that which is true to us. By the way, that's been tested so many times. I remember different things that I knew I needed to write down, pausing and saying, God, I need to live this right now, don't I? You do. Oh, can't I just write it? No, I can't. No, I can't. I can't go in that direction, even one inch. Oh, the pillaging of a young, enthusiastic couple. Pillaging means to be robbed from. Young, enthusiastic couple named Eric and Leslie Ludy. We meant well. Enthusiastic for the gospel. And guess what? We were nearly destroyed by the church of Jesus Christ at that time. We stood up. I can't tell you how many dagger wounds I still have on my back, how many scars I still have on my back from those days when we first stood up to stand for truth. I don't even know how to express it to you. All I can say is if any of you have ever gone through difficulties with the church of Jesus Christ, I understand. Every ministry looked at us as a threat. We had so many young people around the world that wanted to come to our conferences and all the youth pastors looked at us because we were saying the exact opposite of what the youth pastors were telling them. And so we had like a youth pastors haters club that was against us. It was one difficult time to be alive for me. That was when I had my stress disorder when I was 28. This is uh, 15 years ago. I had, we had so much opposition, so much difficulty. We had people robbed from us. We had people falsely accuse us. I wasn't expecting that. I thought these were Christians. Who crucified Jesus? It was the religious system. What I wasn't prepared for was the cross. I was wanting the revival. You speak truth, you get revival. What happens if you get the cross? There's a lot of scar tissue inside of Eric Ludi. A lot. And every once in a while, you guys as a local church might accidentally brush up against it. You don't know what you're brushing up against, but there's a little scar tissue there. There's a little reticence on Eric's part to just fully entrust myself to a body. There's a stance sort of like this instead of ready to jump in. I've jumped in before and been eaten for lunch. If any of you have gone through these things, I just want you to know I understand. But I think it would also help you to understand that Eric has some scar tissue. By the way, scar tissue doesn't define my life. Jesus does. And Jesus mows right over scar tissue. He doesn't, you know, pat me on the back and say, oh, Eric, we'll take it easy on you. He just pushes me right in. However, you'll notice that there's different points where Eric will hesitate. The wolves and the necessity to build a sheep pen. One of the things, we've had Satanists that have come into our groups. We've had people with the intent of destroying us that have crept in unawares. What does that do to a leader when they begin to realize that this is actual, that things like this really do happen? You have a tendency to put up fences. You have a tendency to build little gates. It's like, do we have a lock for that gate? Yeah, sheep in here, wolves out there. And so one of the things that has really been challenging for Leslie and I is I'm a social person. Leslie is a very introverted person. I'm a social person. I love people. And so my natural propensity, I grew up in an open-door home. 
an open door policy home. You guys know what I mean by that? Door is just always open and people are in, out, in, out, in, out. Well, when people want to come in and bug your house, what do you do? Do you keep an open door? When people want to come in and harm your children, what do you do? Do you keep an open door? How do you handle these things in my position? You know that the counsel that comes from leadership for me and Leslie in our position is don't let anyone know your home address. That's the counsel that we would get. And yet many of you know my home address. I'm bucking the system, but I still don't know the full solution. I don't know how to deal. I am not just a local figure. People all over the world know who I am. I do not know exactly how to integrate into a local body. These are hard, difficult things that Leslie and I have wrestled through for years. It would be a lot easier if we just didn't have a local body and we could just travel the world and make that our local body. And yet here I stand. I genuinely love you guys. And I want the Spirit of God to show me how the local body works. The struggles of knowing how to do this, this ministry thing. If I were to barricade and just create, let's just call it a focus on the family. Focus on the family doesn't have a local church. It's just a ministry. It's just a parachurch ministry. You can insulate it. You can protect it. You know the focus on the family is under massive siege? It is. Well, so are we. But we have a local church dynamic. How in the world are we supposed to do both and? If you're under siege, hide. Barricade. And yet, what does a local church have as one of its basic elements? An open door. So... What I'm appealing to you, even in through and bringing that up, is understanding one of the reasons you've seen us moving forward slowly and understanding how to move forward in a local church model, it's more difficult than you probably realize for us at Ellerslie because we have people that want to destroy us here. They want to stop what we're doing in Windsor. And that's not an exaggeration. I deal with these things all the time. It is a serious threat, and for us... How do we step forward in a local church dimension more effectively, at the same time protect what God's doing? The very real scandal of modern ministry. I'm not going to go into it, and I don't know how much you guys know. As far as I'm concerned, probably the less you know, maybe the healthier you might be. But we've had a lot of failure, a lot, in the church of Jesus Christ, in and amongst its leaders, even in the past months and, and years. There is a tremendous weight. A lot of these men I know, a lot of these men I would, might even call friends. The level of impact on me is quite severe. It's very hard for me. There's reasons of why it's hard, and it's difficult for me to explain, and sometimes I don't know how to express it. Because when you are in leadership, there's a different impact than if I was just sitting next to you in the, in the seats, and you heard something, you turned to me and said, did you hear that? Yeah, I heard that. It's different. Because when a leader fails, typically everyone looks to the leader that is still standing and asks, the question, are they next? 
if that person had something hidden in their life, is there something hidden in their life? How, do, how does a leader deal with that? There's no manual for this, by the way, outside the Bible. And it's not like I really have found the chapter and verse that deals directly with that, other than false accusation. But it's not really false accusation. It's just human processing. Is there a hidden sin in every minister of the gospel? The Eric, are you next burden? I carry a burden. It's the Eric, are you next burden? Am I the next one to fall? <laughs> How do you deal with that as a leader? I made no choices for them. I have nothing to do with their inner life and their decisions. I have no idea what led them to the decisions they made. All I know is my confidence rests in Jesus Christ and not in a man. My hope, my strength, my salvation, the sureness of my footing does not rest in you, them. It rests in Jesus Christ. I cannot try and prove myself. All I can do is live consistently, honestly, and with integrity. The last man standing sensation. I feel this. I feel a bullseye on my forehead. I feel the enemy wants to destroy me. He wants to not just destroy me, but cut me up into little pieces. He's upset with something. And when you have a lot of friends and fellow compatriots in the church of Jesus Christ that have failed, some of them failed at minor levels, some at more major levels. Uh, one pastor, friend of mine this last week, stepped down simply because of charges of a youth pastor 20 years earlier in his church when he was 16. And he stepped down because he's the lead pastor of that church now, just because it's creating a disturbance. Well, he didn't do anything wrong necessarily, but still there is scandal associated with these names. And it's a weight that is difficult to deal with as a leader. The principle of the loudest man is usually the most guilty man. If you speak something loudly, that means you're most likely covering it up as loudly as you can. So how does that make me feel? I'm a pretty loud guy. I might be one of the loudest preachers in America today. Who knows? I've never measured it. Does that mean I'm covering something up? Isn't that an interesting thing? Should I get quiet? How should I as a leader handle these things? Well, I think you've already found out. I have to literally set my forehead like flint and say my confidence is in Jesus Christ and that cross. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks. It doesn't matter what the accusations are. I still must live my life in a godly way. The principle of stay quiet and maybe they won't notice you. Who's they? Well, we know they are out there. They're just waiting for me to step in a pile of manure and they catch it on film. They. We cannot fear they. We cannot live for they. We cannot try and appease they. Yes, there is a they. There really is. And they do want us dead. But that's just because we were followers of Jesus Christ. That they is truly Satan and all his cohorts. And any human that they can round up in the meanwhile, they do want us dead. But we don't play for them. Greater is he that is in us than they. That's true. So that's how we live. My main ambition in life is to be on the devil's most wanted list. I used to say that. I've paused over the past few years of saying that too loudly. It's like, you know what? It's actually not that fun. 
It's a bold statement, and it's, a real, it's one that makes you laugh out loud, but God, when you're having conversations with the devil, you don't need to bring up my name and say, have you considered my servant Eric? <laughs> At the same time, that is what I want. I want to have a life, truly, that makes an impact, that causes hell problems. I do. I genuinely do. What if you are noticed? If you're noticed and the enemy starts to take notice of you, I was telling someone before church, I had three years in my life of what I could call the voice of diminishment. It attended me. You ever heard of Paul when he had the thorn in the flesh? He had this messenger from Satan. I don't know how to describe what I had. Three straight years of, you're nothing! You're nothing! Shut up! I mean, it was nonstop in my life. Give it up! No one wants to hear this. There is no one on earth that wants this. No one! You know one thing that happened and through that? Is I learned that that voice was not from God, which is one of the most important things you could ever get. And I learned how to ignore it and turn the volume all the way down. Still going off. Still making a lot of noise. And guess what? It didn't bother me anymore. And now whenever I hear that voice, I recognize it very quickly. You know, when the enemy's going that far out of his way to get you to shut up, there might be something that you're saying that's important to keep sharing. The voice of diminishment, when you get noticed by the enemy, I'm guessing he loves to assign that one to us. There's another one, the voice of condemnation. I've had in this past week, and that's the reason it made it on my list, a very intense attack of the voice of condemnation. What's funny is I don't usually deal with the voice of condemnation. But I tell you what, with all the failures of the men around, I feel it's like the enemy's trying to create some fog bank around me. I mean, this is real stuff that I have to deal with. And this morning I actually leapt for joy in the midst of this voice that was hollering at me. I know, I know what it is. It's not God. It's the voice of the enemy literally trying to create some infrastructure of thought that would say, just give up. Just leave. You know, you're not fit for anything. If you can't do it perfectly, you might as well give up. You know, I know that I'm not doing this whole Ellerslie Mission Society and all the framework and the structure of the local church thing perfectly. You don't need to tell me that, I know. And yet, guess what? It's sincere. It's a genuine desire to please God and to bring glory to God. Do not listen to this voice of condemnation. When you stick your head up, yeah, you're going to get some shrapnel. But guess what? He is your armor. And that shield of faith, you hold it up and it will repel all the fiery darts of the evil one. Refusing to back down, knowing the cost and knowing full well a splintery cross awaits. Are we willing as a church of Jesus Christ, not just as individuals, but as a whole body? We will not back down. Yes, we know the cost. We know full well a splintery cross awaits. The times of Jesus. The wicked, the guilty become the judges. This is actually what happened in the times of Jesus. The wicked, the ones that crucified Jesus, those were the wicked. And yet they become the judges. And then the savior or the innocent becomes the judged. Well, let's look at Christianity today. The wicked or the God-haters become the correct. We call it the politically correct, the socially correct. The champions of truth, the God-declarers, become the condemned. 
Who's the problem in our society today? Christians. You know, and it doesn't help when the Christian leaders are failing. That only adds that much more bait to the enemy. However, guess what? If I'm feeling this at even a small level, I know you probably feel it at some level too. The enemy wants to put shame on us because we're Christians. And I say, slough it off. We follow the King of Kings and we bear his name well. We bear it boldly and confidently. We have a job to do in this earth and the enemy is working overtime to try and silence us. Let us not be silent. The perfect storm. The makings of the happiest man on earth. By the way, that's me. All this stuff I'm saying is not to try and warrant pity. It's to say this has become the perfect storm. I live in such a time where it's a very, very difficult thing to be a strong leader. It's a very, very difficult time to be a strong man. Guess what? You do too. And I'm calling this the perfect storm. Yeah, it looks like a storm, but guess what? This perfect storm has all the ingredients to make you the happiest person on earth. You don't want to live in a time of ease. You want to live now. This is our hour. This is the chosen time when we pop out of our mother's womb and have grown to a full maturity. This is the hour. This is the time to rejoice right now. It's time for idiot preachers to arise. This is our hour. Do not be afraid of the scandal. Boldly go where hardly any man in their right mind would ever go. Boldly go there. Carl Hopkins Elmore, from his book, Quit You Like Men, says, Sir Ernest Shackleton, when he was about to set out on one of his expeditions, printed a statement in the papers to this effect. Men wanted for hazardous journey to the South Pole, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. In speaking of it afterward, he said that so overwhelming was the response to his appeal that it seemed as though all the men of Great Britain were determined to accompany him. Who would sign up for that? A dangerous journey to the South, was South Pole? Is that what I said? To the South Pole, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful? Who in the right mind would do this? Idiots. Uh-huh, I'm setting you up for something. The invitation to the cross. Men wanted for hazardous journey to Calvary's cross. Death to self, relinquishment of all control, utter humbling of the inner man are prerequisites to the journey. Guaranteed suffering, tribulation, and persecution. Rejection from society, certain. Do you need me to read that again just in case? I didn't make it small print either. I'm laying it right out there for you. Rejection from society, certain. But look at the last line. Benefits too great to calculate. Just one simple line. Come to the cross. Benefits too great to calculate. You get him. Yeah, you lose the world. The world turns against you, but why would you want the world when you could have him? I've caught the heavenly vision. Long and short, a fireside chat from a pastor. You happen to have a pastor who is Whether or not I always behave as the idiot I should, I know that I'm called to be an idiot. 
Not an idiot in heaven, an idiot down here. I'm not called to try and look good on paper. I'm not, tried, I'm not called to try and look good to this world. However, I want to be marked by love. And if I'm rejected, I want it to be rejected because they do not like the smell of life. I do not want them rejecting my life or any of your lives because of just mere stupidity or harshness or belittlement or any type of pride or arrogance that we bear, self-righteousness. I want us to die on crosses because we loved so well. So here's the second part, the making of the father to the poor. The fear of failure and of not having enough. You know that Leslie and I didn't have kids for 10 years of marriage? Now, part of that had to do with the fact that we couldn't, but a good portion of it is the simple fact that we didn't think we could do what we were doing and have kids at the same time. It was a tactical maneuver. I'm a very thought-through person. We're traveling all over the world. How can you have kids at the same time? Well, let's dig a little deeper. Eric is actually afraid of having kids. I don't want to break them. I mean, have you ever had one of those little delicate newborns and then oh, the mom's like, and hold the neck, support the neck. Well, just hold it yourself. I don't want to break anything. <laughs> and so for me, is the fear of failure and of not having enough in me. I was looking to my own pockets and saying, I just, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. When God fully forms me as a man, then, then I'll have something to give. Well, any of you that have kids know what forms a man or a woman of God is not just being formed outside of kids. What's the greatest points of growth that you could ever have? But kids! Lacking the father burden. So it wasn't just a fear. It was also, there was something missing inside of Eric. I thought kids were cute. You ever had that where you just like, I like looking at kids? So less than I would look at kids. Oh, they're cute. They're cute. Love kids. Love kids. But there was no burden for children. There was no burden to raise children. I know that sounds terrible. I'm just telling you the way it was. And I'm also saying I wasn't an idiot preacher either. In other words, I had the polish. I was very self-centered without knowing I was self-centered. I didn't understand that what I was doing was contrary to the nature of God. I didn't understand that. Hudson, the beginnings of something very special. We thought we were going to have a little girl. Leslie and I were both convinced of it. When I remember the, even the moment when I was shaving or something and Leslie appeared behind me uh, in the mirror and brushing my teeth or something, something up in this range at least. And she said, pregnant. You're pregnant. <laughs> Is this real? Uh, and we were both convinced it was a girl, and then we went in for an ultrasound. Leslie and I cheated on the first baby. I'll blame it on her uh, to find out what sex it was. And uh, almost in moments in, they said, uh, oh, you got yourself a little boy. I'm like, what? Where's our girl? Isn't there a girl in there somewhere? Do we have twins? Whoa, twins. <laughs> we had a boy. And I remember the whole drive home feeling unready. It's like, I don't know why I thought I was ready for a girl, but it's maybe because in my mind I was saying, well, Leslie will deal with all that. 
but feeling so unready because my vision for manhood is big. And I need my boy to have something. I don't know if I'm yet ready to give it, but it was a fear. It was a fear that I kept looking to what I had to give. So Hudson came along. All, all I can really say is that children change you in a way that's hard to articulate or enunciate, but they soften, they expose selfishness. Yes, that's, that's sort of the, the known thing that most of us have heard somewhere along the line. Or they really do. And something began to change in my life. About two years after this, uh, we experienced a miscarriage. Possibly one of the most difficult things less than I ever went through. But it was about six weeks into the pregnancy, and I remember just thinking, here, here was my rational thought. Well, I'm glad it was just six weeks. And so let's, we have a lot of people watching us. Let's not go into some tunnel and hide out. Let's just be strong for them, and let's keep motoring forward in life. All right? God will give grace for this. In the process... Leslie physically nearly fell apart because we never grieved. It was a very strange phenomenon, but we had not placed value on that life. We just found out that she was pregnant, and then we lost the baby. And what I tried to do was diminish the value so that I wouldn't have to feel. And God put his finger square on that. Eric? You know that I deeply care about that life? You do? You know that if you don't cry over it, no one will? You see, no one will ever know about this life, Eric. And it's precious to me. You know, one of the things that so greatly impacted my life was to realize how precious an unborn life is to God. And to realize how many little ones are being unnoticed right now. How many little lives are vulnerable. And no one cares. Only the children still cry. We were reading uh, To Kill a Mockingbird at the time. And I don't remember the guy's name that was falsely accused, but he's uh, the African-American man that was falsely accused. And the whole town turned against him, even though he was innocent. And the children were up in the balcony watching this travesty of justice. And the entire town was fine with it. It was just just and right. Put the blame on the black man. And the little child had to leave because he was sobbing. And he was distracting everything. And he went out into the square. And there the, the town drunk was out there. And he looked over and he saw the, the child crying. And he said, only the children still cry. And that little statement hit me. Because I'd recognized I'd lost something. I wasn't crying anymore. I'd moved, I'd matured. I was like the town that was just like, you know, these things happen. These things shouldn't happen. What did Job do? Would Job have done something? He was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. He broke the jaws of the evildoers, removed the prey from their teeth. I wasn't. I was failing as a shepherd in my life because my little flock 
was God's flock. And he says, my people need to become your people. And that injustice is happening to one of my people. Will you make that one yours? Depraved indifference. If any of you have ever heard the video, this is precisely at the time frame when this was happening. Leslie and I were awakened to the plight of the weak and the needy. We started that way in our marriage, but something about ministry and the busyness of it takes you off your game. It removes your focus from what the Spirit is doing, and it gets you into a self-mode of survival. And God began to turn us outward, and we said, God, what do you want to do with our life? By the way, this was smack in the time when we were ready to move to Nicaragua. And... I had had a conversation with someone in Liberia who had said that there was a four-year-old boy on the side of the road in Liberia, and they, they had no one in their ministry. They had maxed out all their space. All their helpers were completely maxed out. They had room in their, in their little orphanage for like 18, and they had like 30 to 40 in there. They were so overwhelmed, and no one was coming to help. They had so much need. Kids are dying on the side of the road and no one is there to even be with them when they die. And she said, there's a four-year-old boy sitting on the side of the road. He has no one to feed him, no one to protect him. I remember being shocked and horrified. Every single one of us would be or are. But I went back to my normal day. I heard it, processed it, was horrified by it, shook my head. And then in the middle of the night, I woke up. And that little boy was sitting in front of me. And I could see it in my mind. Eric, what if that was Hudson? What if that was Hudson? Oh, God. I would mow down any opposition to get to him. I would do whatever it would take. Because that's my son. No one treats my son that way. If my son was abandoned, if my son's on the side of the road without anyone to feed him, my son was four years old at the time. What would daddy be willing to do? Anything! Well, Eric, that little boy is my Hudson. Wow. God has Hudsons out there. You see, for so many years, I'd been unable to even love a Hudson. I didn't even allow myself to open, but now God's beginning to crack me open, but not that much, God. That's risky. Are you willing to go to the risky? Are you willing to allow God's Father's heart to begin to penetrate yours and that his people would become your people? You'll take care of your family. You'd suffer and die for your family. How about his family? The fervent praying begins. I remember Leslie and I began to pray unlike we'd ever prayed in our life. And I remember this one little stretch of time where we began to say, God, show us your burden. Because there's so many things. I mean, if you start dealing with the weak, there's weak everywhere. Leslie was studying all over the world. We had the street kids in Brazil. We had the uh, child trafficking. We had these enslaved little girls down in South America. We had the, uh, the Ugandan uh, LRA soldiers, the little boys that are taken into the, the army. We had the orphan issue at the time was 143 million orphans, 27 million human slaves. It was massive. Had no idea even how to respond to any of this. God, show us where you want us. Show us what you want us to do. I just want to 
do something. I know many of you have felt the exact same way. I want to do something, but you feel paralyzed. You don't even know what to do. So we began to pray. And for two straight weeks, we had a two-week period. We said, let's, let's reevaluate in two weeks. But let's take two weeks without trying to make a decision. And in two weeks, let's determine what we need to do. So two weeks later, I still remember where we were. We were in a gas station, very unromantic locations for some of these things. But I got back into the car after pumping the gas, and Leslie said, orphans. I said, I know, orphans. It was just, it's what we needed to be doing at that season. I don't know why. It's not that there isn't another season. Uh, where we wouldn't be associated with orphans. I think we all, as the church, must help the orphan. But we all must be helping all of them. The poor, the weak, the widow. Every one of them must be our job. However, for us, we knew our first step was with the orphan. So we decided, Leslie was looking up in the phone book or on Google. I don't remember how it worked back then. And she found the nearest international adoption agency. We didn't know anything about adoption at all. And we weren't planning on adopting, by the way. We just wanted to help. So we're figuring, okay, they work with orphans. And so it was a place down in Berthen. So she said, I just think we should start there. And I agreed. I think that just sounds reasonable. We'll just go in and do a, it's like a fact-finding mission. And we'll just go in to find out what we can do to help. We're not going to adopt. So the night before, I remember saying something like, what if God wanted us to adopt? And we're like, I mean, that wasn't even the way we thought. You, you, you adopt if you can't have children. You don't adopt if you can have children. I mean, what, who would do that? It just wasn't even a part of our thinking, which is quite a strange thing in and of itself. But I remember just feeling like this desire to be ready for it, but we didn't have the money for it. I don't know if any of you have ever gotten close to the issue of adoption, but it's fairly hefty. In its cost. So we had heard rumor that it cost around 12000 to adopt internationally. And so we were thinking, well, that would be about, if we took an entire year, two-year period just eating beans and rice and took all of our grocery, excess grocery fund and just gave it to this, then maybe in a year or two we could uh, adopt. That was literally what we said the night before. So, but it's like, well, God, if you show us that that's what we're supposed to be doing tomorrow, then maybe in a year or two we could do it the visit. So we show up at the adoption agency, and I'd made certain requirements of Leslie before we walked in. We do not look at pictures because they manipulate through pictures, okay? And I don't want to get all guilty by someone showing us a picture. It's like we can't adopt. We're just here in a fact-finding mission, all right? You guys following me? You guys, some of you are thinking, how cold-hearted. Some of you are like, yeah, reasonable, Eric. So we go in, and they just sort of gave us this, I don't want to say a spiel, because it wasn't bad. It was just not what I was wanting to hear. It was like, so do you want a boy or a girl? Uh, no, 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 we're just here in a fact-finding mission. Uh, do you want to adopt from China or Korea? Those are the two areas that they specialized in. It's like, well, actually, we, it's, it's not that, that, that's not what we're looking to do. Well, I'll tell you right now that a boy out of China will take about 15 months. A girl will take possibly around two and two and a half years. Girls are very popular right now in America. We have about a 100-person waiting list uh, to adopt. There was nothing attractive to me. If there's already a 100 people lined up to help these kids, then look, (laughs) that's the fact-finding we needed. I'm not needed here. I want to go someplace where there's need. And so Leslie asked the fateful question. 
Are there any other children? The lady, lady said, well, we have waiting children. Sort of like, oh, you're actually interested in other children? We have waiting children. What does that mean? Well, you know, they're, sometimes they're older or they have special needs, physical needs. And as a result, the hundred families have passed them over. And Leslie says, uh, what happens to these children if they don't get adopted? And the lady said, well, they have a window of time where they're released for adoption. And if they're not adopted in that window, then they're institutionalized for the rest of their life. So she said, do you want to see uh, some examples of waiting children? And Leslie was like, well, what, what do you mean by that? Could you give me some more specifics? She said, well, uh, we have one little girl, for instance, one little girl that uh, is missing her fingers. She's... She has two thumbs. She has a club foot. She has, that... she has deformities on her right foot. In Korea... That's a shame issue. And so she was given up, passed over by all the other families. She had a little window of time left before she would be institutionalized. And the lady said, do you want to see a picture? No, no. No pictures. She goes, how about I just show you a picture of her hands? Does that sound harmless to you? She brought out an 8 by 10 picture of 8-day-old Harper hands. <laughs> Possibly the most precious thing I've ever seen in my life. My father heart, which had been so dead. God was stretching it in ways I wasn't expecting. I didn't know how to handle this because I was seeing something. I'd asked God to show me a practical thing to do. I just wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting it to come to me in this package. And so I just had to get out of there. I didn't want to cry in front of this lady. Uh, and so we got in the car, and Leslie was really concerned because I had gotten out of there so quick. And she had been so moved by this. It's sort of like, that's it. This is, this is our girl, Eric. We didn't even see her face. All we saw were two little hands. And so we got in the car, and I couldn't speak, and Leslie was really concerned about me. Sort of like, what? Uh, uh, almost like I need to have a prayer session for Eric if he's so hard. <laughs> she turned over and saw that my face was streaming with tears. And I remember praying on the way back. You could hardly say anything on the way back, but all that came out was Psalm 68.5. Lord, you are a father to the fatherless. You put the solitary in families. I came home, and Leslie's computer was like situated on the corner of the counter so that we could just see it when we came in. And so she turned on her computer. There was an email waiting. And it said, I was praying for you this morning. So no one knew we were going there. Praying for you this morning. I just have a scripture for you. I'm a random person. And it says, Psalm 68, 5. God is the father of the fatherless. He sets the solitary in families. Leslie and I prayed that night. Uh, I remember sneaking a picture, uh, sneaking, sneaking a peek of this little girl online because you could actually access the file online. And she had these pants that were pulled all the way up to here. And she was the most adorable little thing I'd ever seen. I mean, my heart, my father's heart was just melting. And I remember thinking, because they told us 
Oh, we didn't have any. Zero. Had no idea, never heard of any grants or anything like that at the time. Didn't know anything about this. All we knew is that if God said yes, that money would be there. You know that Leslie and I actually did not spend one dime by the time Harper came home? We had to, we had to have 15000 I think it was like $535 in two weeks. And on that day, we had 15500 And then we were writing a check after we went to pay. We were writing a check to the, lady, the girl that was watching over Hudson at the time. And I was writing a check for $35. She says, no, put that in the Harper Fund. It was the exact amount on that exact day. God supplied it. Something was happening inside of me. Leslie miscarried, and there was a due date. The due date was almost identical when we got a call from the adoption agency two and a half months after we went in, and we said yes to Harper. The due date for our little child that was miscarried, we get a call, and it was, your child is waiting to be picked up. How God turns tragedy and difficulty to awaken his church, he'll do it. Doesn't mean he's the author of miscarriage, but it does mean he's the author of the one who can take a miscarriage and turn it into a triumph. And he did in our life. The orphan beds. Hudson found out about orphans, same time. And Hudson wanted 20 orphans from Haiti. So he built, and Leslie said, we don't have room in our house, buddy. And so he said, what are the, well, we just need beds. So he went, out, went around and built orphan beds all over the house. So he had about two or three in our room, some in Harper's room, some in the hall, and he took the brunt of the hits in his room with about five, all his favorite stuffed animals. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this. It's Ellerslie history lore, but the very first sermon ever preached from this stage was not by me, it was by Hudson. I wasn't here to witness it, but he got up and paced around like Daddy does. And then he stopped and he said, uh, did you know that we need to rescue orphans? That God wants us to rescue orphans? Is that what it was, buddy? Did you know that God wants us to rescue orphans? Opening up our home, the pre-decided yes, Lord. Leslie and I decided that our home is his home. It's very hard for us, by the way, especially with all the things I've already described to you. Because... I haven't gone into any detail of the things that I've experienced in the local church, the specifics, but if you could trust me in just knowing there are very good reasons why Leslie and I have to be extremely watchful with our home and our family. And so opening up our door and making ourselves an open house for any child that needs a mother and a father was a huge risk for us at a certain level, even emotionally. Because romantically, it sounds wonderful, but this is a hard thing. First of all, we, we had Harper, then we had Kipling, who we adopted, and we found out when we were in the hospital, even picking him up, that Leslie was pregnant with Avi. We had four kids, four and under. And if any of you have ever gone through four kids, four and under, you understand why there's a hesitation to say, God, fill up my home with more. It was extremely challenging. We were starting Ellerslie at the same time. It's like the dynamics we were going through were just extreme, and yet what God was saying is, Eric, are you going to put a barricade? Are you going to put rules around your home based on your human understanding, or are you willing to open up your home according to my understanding? So we say, yes, Lord, is our answer. So we get a call about two abandoned kids in Haiti. We got the call. We weren't initiating. We're not looking. We're not out there looking. <laughs> we got the call. 
And our answer was yes. Lillian Reese. Two and a half years ago, that call came in. Actually, just over two years ago, that call came in. Our answer was yes. These last two plus years have been absolute anguish in this process for my father's heart. We were supposed to have them home a year and a half ago. Corruption, deceit, forgeries, bribes, threats, and extreme heartache. I tell you what, becoming an idiot preacher is hard. Becoming a father to the poor may be harder. I'm not saying that what you're signing up for in being a Christian is easy. I'm saying it's a cross and has splinters on it. And yet we're the happiest people on earth the whole while. I don't want your sympathies. I'm not looking for empathy. These last two plus years have been heaven. I've had all sorts of situations that would be impossible for most of you to wrap your minds around of what we've gone through. However, God's been good. And God has worked on my father's heart. How do you love as a father? And this is what I've had to come to this year. Eric, the reason you're struggling is because you're trying to love out of what you have. You need to learn to go to my reservoir. I was really struggling because with Lily and Reese, there were moments where we found out that their adoption was not right. I'll just put it that way. It was done incorrectly, and they may not even be adoptable. And this is after a year and a half of loving them, to find out that they may not be adoptable. It would be actually illegal for us to take them out of the country. How does a father heart deal with that? Well, in the natural sense, you begin to cut off. In the natural sense, once you begin to find out that there could be pain up ahead, what do you do? You recoil and you pull back. So what I was struggling with is, God, I I care about these two, but I don't know that I should. And it's just the natural side of it. Now you have to realize I'm talking about this isn't going to end with that statement. The altar of Molech. Here's what you needed to do. You needed to take your child and you needed to sacrifice them on the altar of Molech. And then you'll have peace in your life. You'll have prosperity. Sounds like a good trade-off, doesn't it? You know that the altar of Molech is very commonly used in America today. Abortion is one of the number one ways it's used. You want peace? You want prosperity? Well, you need to get rid of that child. That child is your problem. No? The child is the instrument of you understanding God's grace. Don't cut off the child. That child is a gift. And so in this process, the altar of Molech was brought in front of us. I remember this very specifically because God showed me what was going on. And it was, just give up this adoption. Get away from it as far as you can. If any of you know the backside of this whole adoption thing, you'd understand why less than I would be inclined to say, let's get as far away from this as possible. Instead, there it is. The altar of Molech is setting there. It says, set recent lily on it. And you'll have peace once again in your life. Can't do it can't do it, (laughs) even though to continue in sheer agony, to continue could mean a lifetime more of this. How does a father deal with this? How does a father wrestle through these things? Well, here's the secret. 
If you're looking in your own pockets to be a father to the poor, and I'm not just talking to the men in here, I'm talking to all of us who share the Father's heart. If you're trying to do it in your own strength, you will fail. You will not have enough, and the altar of Molech will be your end. You cannot do it. He can. Listen to this. Through pain, a father's heart is cultivated. I have greater strength because of my children. For years, I tried to somehow keep strength by not having them. And now I've begun to realize that the true secret in life is allowing God's people to become my people. This is hard for me because this isn't just my family. This includes you guys. There's a lot of pain in the church of Jesus Christ. And it's very difficult for me to open up my life to Reese's and Lilies, but it might be even more difficult for me to open up my life in even a greater degree to a local church. And yet, through pain, a father's heart is cultivated. It's knowing that the cross has splinters on it, but knowing that he's there to carry me through. I have certain things that have stirred in me for, for, for many years. When Harper first came home, I pictured knowing how I was raising Hudson. I always picture this scene of Harper's life being in danger. <laughs> and Hudson staying in the gap. And being killed to save her. <laughs> I'm not saying that's a prophecy. I'm saying just as a father. I tell you what. There's joy in that. To see that my son has done what Christ would do. And there's pain in that. But that's what I'm raising my children for. <sighs> this statement. Through pain, a father's heart is cultivated. I have this picture of my kids all heading out into all the world to preach the gospel. Every end of every semester when I have all these students that I love and they all are leaving, it's very hard. And there's pain every semester because as a staff, our choice every semester is to not hold back in our love. To not hold back just because we know that there's going to be pain and separation, but to fully love. And every time we send off, I have this picture in my mind of my kids aren't getting younger, they're getting older. And what am I training them for? I'm training them to go. But to send them off, it's one thing to send them to an Ivy League college. It's a whole other thing to send them to Iraq. It's a whole other thing to send them to Somalia. Am I willing as a father? This is what I mean by the father's heart. I'm not saying that I'm some perfect father any more than I would say that we're the perfect body of Christ here. All I'm saying is this is what God wants to cultivate in us in an ever-growing degree. And I have a picture of Harper heading into North Korea. <laughs> There's no difference between adopted and unadopted in my family. And it's not even a deliberate choice on my part, even though it probably is. They're just my children. And there shouldn't be a difference between my children and you. I have a responsibility to jurisdiction over my children in a different way than I have for you. I don't change your kids' diapers necessarily. That's your job. <laughs> However, your children are my children in a spiritual sense. 
because your children are God's children. And so our family grows when we enter the kingdom of heaven. God's people are my people. You know that God's people are in North Korea? And what's amazing about that is if Harper was in North Korea and she was in danger, how would I feel about Hudson going and helping her? Well, he needs to. That's what a brother would do, wouldn't he? Well, how do I feel about Harper going in to help my brother in the Lord, her brother in the Lord, her sister in the Lord? That's what missions is. Missions is a family maneuver. It's to see the family of God rescued. It's to see the family of God have their feet washed by those that have strength. Some of us have eyes. Well, it's be eyes to the blind. Some of us have feet. Well, it's be feet to the lame. Some of us have resources. Well, our resources belong to our family. In my family, we don't just parse it out and say, well, mommy and daddy have resources. The rest of you fend for yourself. We have resources to take care of a family. Somehow in the church of Jesus Christ, I'm not just trying to go straight to socialism here. I'm just saying that tactically speaking as the body of Christ, when we begin to allow family to be what family is and father heart to be what father heart is, it'll change us. Hudson, Harper, Kipling, Avonlea, Lillian, Reese, as I take them into the pub in East London, these are our people, the people I want you to live for says Papa Ludi. And then I say to the church here, Charlie, David, Grace, Walter, Matt, Sandy, Izzy, Dan, Mike, Ella, Nathan, Barb, Ben, Elijah, Annie, Judah, Joanne, Will, Noah, Nicole, Herda, and Micah. These are our people. The people I want you to live for. An extremely uncomfortable church. I refuse to have anything but. The moment we get comfortable is the moment we might as well shut things up. I want us to be uncomfortable. I know that sounds funny, doesn't it? Uncomfortable in the most pleasant sense, in the God sense. Crosses are not comfortable. Standing on street corners getting hit in the nose with a rotten tomato is not comfortable, and yet there's joy in it. There is some taste of heaven in it that is very difficult to express to those that have never been in the skin of a Christian. An extremely uncomfortable church will be an extremely happy church. We want to be the happiest church on earth. That's my goal. And as a result, I'm giving you the recipe. Let's become an extremely uncomfortable one. I want us to allow the idiot preacher to grow in each one of us. I want us to allow the father to the poor to grow in each of us. And if we do, we're going to be uncomfortable. I can guarantee you that but we will also be extremely happy. If God wants me to be a pastor, which by the way, I still buck, then I must trust that the way he built me matters to those of you who are called to be here in this church. Therefore, this will be a church of idiots that carry the father burden. Now, I'm not saying all of you should hang out here. You notice I don't do a lot of recruiting. I don't do a lot of marketing for this church. I don't think... You can, I don't even know how people find it, except for the fact that our, we do a lot of stuff through Ellerslie that people know about all over the world. But you're here. You're not here on accident. And because you're here, I want to love you as God's children.
And I want you to look around and not just wait to be loved, but I want you to become an instrument of love to those around you. I want you to take this message and not just make it Eric's message. I want it to be your message. This is just the terrain that I've gone through to help, you give, an understand, help give you an understanding of how we work, what we're after, what we're doing. I don't want to just build a church. I don't actually care about that at all. I want to be the body of Christ. That's what I want to do. This environment was set up as an extension of our college, and yet it has a life, and that life is valuable to God. The relationships in this room are of extreme importance to God because he knit them together. Many of you know that you're supposed to be here. And I want to know how to love you better and serve you better. My life is full. I have a very, 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 I'm going to add one more very, but don't be intimidated, very full life. But I love my life. And that's not a complaint. It just also makes it very difficult to tend to a local body, which is why we've been laboring hard to figure out a way to maintain a local body and to somehow serve the East End both in a body and in a community. Leslie, Hudson, Harper, Kipling, Avonlea, Lily, Reese, Belai, Mandy, Christina, Ethan, Jeremiah, Loren, Steve, May, Ruthann, Elsha, Dwight, Sean, Krista, Michael, Susie, Heather, Philip, Morgan, Bo, Kelly, Kara, Cheyenne, Shannon, Tim, Rachel, Kayla, and Mark. I exhort you to embrace the idiot's life as your life. The idiot's message is your message, and the idiot's sufferings as your sufferings. No matter the natural odds for victory, no matter the dangers to life and limb, no matter the risks to reputation and public esteem, no matter if you are the only one still standing, no matter if the battle just doesn't seem to end, no matter if you are tired and there is little left to fight with, no matter if all those around you claim it's no use to keep on swinging, no matter if you are mocked and ridiculed, no matter if you must go against the entire world system, I heartily exhort you to go forth in the power of the Spirit of God and show this world the way Christians actually are supposed to live. I don't feel like a good pastor. To be honest, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that I'm not trying to be a pastor like other pastors. I want to know how God wants me to live, and I just want to live that well. I want to love you well. I want to serve you well. I want to be a listening ear. I want to be a voice of exhortation in your life. I want you to be strengthened by being around my life. I want you to see Jesus in being around my life. But I do not want you to look to me for your salvation. I do not want you to look to me, my sermons, my life, as your strength and impetus for living the Christian life. You will not make it in the Christian life if you do. And it's not because I must morally fail if you do. It means I do not have the virtue to give to you. I cannot impart that grace to you. You must look to Jesus. And when you look to Jesus, you will have all you need to live out the life that you were called to live. My job is to point you to the shepherd. I'm a fellow sheep. A sheep in this environment with a pastoral jurisdiction. But I'm a sheep. So we need to learn to work together to make the shepherd our all in all. There's a lot of pressure that Eric Ludy gets on himself to solve everyone's dilemmas. To be the savior. To be the Messiah. If I fall for that, I'm doing a disservice. 
If I for one moment think that I'm your answer, I'm doing a huge disservice to your soul and to everyone around. I am not the Messiah. He is. I am not the giver of grace. He is. I cannot save. He does. And as you go forth into ministry, people will turn to you and they'll try and make you the one that they lean on and you cannot be that crutch. The only one that can save them is a man named Jesus Christ who was more than a man. He was God. And by the way, still is. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you do have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.